morning. Happy Father's Day. Uh, today, ironically enough, we are uh, looking at the story of Abraham, Father Abraham. How many of you guys who grew up in church remember that weird song, Father Abraham, and you're supposed to like hit your knees with your elbows or something? Yeah, I don't really remember that too much, but uh, yeah, how about that? Father Abraham on Father's Day. Well, as Pastor John said, uh, we're continuing in our Footsteps of Faith series, and uh, if you look at the bottom of your outline, uh, we also have it on the screen coming up here, but it's kind of tiny. There's a timeline that kind of covers the, uh, the main stories, the main characters that we're going to be looking at throughout the summer. And so last week, we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel, and we talked about how God longs to be in a relationship with us uh, where we have nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And today we're actually not moving too far in the book of Genesis. Only one chapter is where we're starting in Genesis from where we were last week. Uh, But what happens in this story ends up being a pretty big move uh, in the story of God and humanity. So just to kind of give us some frame of reference where we're at so far in this story, uh, God creates man to be in this perfect relationship with him, uh, but pretty quickly man messes that up. And to make a long story short, Uh, Man and woman sin, and then they pass on this sinful nature, this sin default uh, to every man and woman born after them. And things get so bad that even after the population had risen considerably, God looks down on earth and he can only point to one righteous man living there, and his name was Noah. And so as much as it pains God, he realizes that he, he just needs to scrap his original plan, he needs to start over with humanity, and he needs to try to bring man back into a restored relationship with him. And so his plan is he has Noah build this huge ark, and then he sends a huge flood to wash the earth clean of all the evil people, and then start humanity out fresh. And so that's what he does, but it doesn't take long. In fact, even in Noah's own family... Uh, for our sinful nature to rear its ugly head once again. And so then that flood happens, and a hundred years after the flood is when the story that we looked at last week takes place, the story of the Tower of Babel, where God scatters uh, the people of earth all over the place, confuses their language in an effort to try to get them to stop relying on themselves and instead to start relying on Him. And then from that point, if you jump 200 more years, Uh, This is where the story of Abram starts in Genesis 12. And the story of Abram, who we're going to refer to today as Abraham, because that ends up being his name later on down the road. The story of Abraham is the story of a man who went on a journey that required him to leave everything he knew behind. Abraham essentially exchanged his old life, which really wasn't that bad, for a new life. And when we talk about the topic of exchanges, we've all had... Plenty of experience with exchanges. One story, back when I was in high school, we had an opportunity uh, to join a club uh, that got to meet during school hours every few weeks, which we were like, yeah, no school during school hours? Yeah, awesome. Uh, And so back in that time, I was trying to figure out what club am I going to join. Now, I'm a big sports fan. Any other big sports fans in the room this morning? Yeah, we got a bunch of us. And back in that time, I was also a big um, sports card collecting fan as well. And my best friend at the time, another sports card aficionado, uh, and I decided that we were going to join this card collecting club that just happened to be meeting uh, at that time, which we were like, hey, hey, something cool. So back in that day, I was a big uh, Chicago Bulls fan, even before they won any of their championships. And it was hard not to be. Uh, I love that the two guys that are going to pop up on the screen here. Yes, yes. There they are. 
Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. These are uh, two cards that I still possess today, but I was all about trying to get as many Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen cards as I could, just like these from 1989 and 1990 there. You see the the beauty of our technology that we had in creating these beautiful cards. (laughs) But the question I, I, I ran against every club meeting was, how much am I willing to sacrifice? Was I willing to trade some of my second-tier favorite players' cards in order to get some of my favorite players' cards? So would I be willing to give up the guys in the next slide, like Kobe Bryant, who I loved as a rookie and now can't stand him at all? Or Allen Iverson, Philadelphia 76er when he was drafted. Was I willing to give up those guys in order to get some more Michael Jordans or some more Scottie Pippins? There were multi-card trades that were so overanalyzed and thought through that it took me weeks to pull the trigger because it was hard to give up cards of players that I liked in order to get cards of players that I loved. But that's what exchanges are all about, giving up something that you have in order to receive something else better. But exchanges can be hard, and I think it's because of the giving up piece. Because in any exchange, you can't hang on to the old and still get the new. You have to forfeit this old thing in order to possess the new thing. And this is what Abraham and his story so impressively did. To give up his dreams for God's dreams. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. What old dreams do we need to forfeit in order to possess the new dreams that God has for us? And what does that process of exchange really even look like anyways? So if you haven't done so already, if you can grab the uh, outline out of your program guide and you can use it today to be able to take notes and to follow along uh, in our story. So I exchange my dream for God's dream, number one, when I follow him into something new. Follow him into something new. You know, in order for us to be able to fully appreciate the new thing that God is calling Abraham to, Uh, We need to understand at least a little bit about the old thing uh, that Abraham would be giving up. Abraham came from a fairly large city that was named Ur. How would you like to grow up in a town called Ur? Someone asks you, where are you from? Um, Ur, you know. But Ur sits in present-day Iraq, and it was found at the mouth of the Euphrates River. And so being close to water gave uh, the people of Ur a greater sustainability for life. Uh, And oftentimes it gave them a greater chance uh, to attain wealth or prosperity. Ur was also what we call a polytheistic city. Poly meaning many and theistic meaning God. So the people of Ur worshipped many gods and Abraham's family was no exception to that. I found out this week that Abraham's father, Terah, even ran his own idol shop where he sold idols representing uh, this multiplicity of gods uh, that they believed in. Some research goes even further and actually suggests that many people in Abraham's family were named after the moon god of Ur and his god associates. And that moon god was named Nana. And in fact, the the name of the city, Ur, itself was derived from the name of Nana in the Sumerian language. So Abraham grew up in a culture that was totally focused on idol worship and all of these different gods. Abraham was pretty used to city life in Ur, And then once he's of marrying age, he marries uh, a woman named Sarai, who was also pretty used to city life. Sarai's name was later changed to Sarah, so for simplicity's sake, that's what we're going to call her throughout the rest of the morning. Now, from all indications, Abraham's was a pretty tight family. Like, if his family was living in this day and age, they probably would be one of those families that all converge together on Sunday nights to share a meal together. 
And so they stuck together and they shared life together. So when Terah, Abraham's dad, when he decides he needs to move to the city of Haran, which is in modern-day Turkey, Abraham and, and Sarah care so much about him, they care so much about this family togetherness, that they also uproot their lives in order to move and to be able to stay with him. Now, aside from what I've already told you about Abraham, we actually don't know a whole lot uh, about him before God calls him on this new journey. But there's bits of Hebrew tradition that teach that Abraham didn't participate uh, in his family's religious habits, implying that maybe God may have chosen him for this new journey because he was different than everyone else. But while this tradition says that he didn't participate in the worship of Nana, there's also really no biblical evidence saying that him and Sarah were looking for another God to replace Nana. But just like God longs for a place in each of our lives, God was longing for a place in Abraham's life as well. And so Abraham's story with God begins in Genesis 12, 1 through 4, and this is how it reads. It says, Then the Lord told Abram, Leave your country, your relatives, and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So let me frame this story for you, just so that we're all kind of looking at it through the same eyes. Abraham at this point is 75 years old, and his entire life experience was spent around people who believed in a myriad of gods. And so suddenly, this God, who he's never heard of, he's never had contact with, shows up and speaks to Abraham and tells him, leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your father's home to go somewhere. I mean, God doesn't even specify where he wants him to go. So this is kind of out of left field. I mean, if you think about it, how did Abraham even recognize God's voice? How did he know that this God was the real deal? the God who should rise above the rest of the gods that his family was worshiping. You know, of all the gods that Abraham could have chosen to follow, why would Abraham stake it all on this one unknown God who asked him to do something seemingly crazy? You know, maybe for Abraham it was just one of those moments in life where God makes himself absolutely clear to someone. Maybe you've had some of those moments yourself where out of the blue... (laughs) You received some direction or heard a voice and you could just tell without a doubt that it was God speaking to you. So Abraham gets these orders, right, from this God that he's never heard of. And if that's not crazy enough, what's even crazier is that there is absolutely no record of any argument put up by Abraham. He doesn't offer up any excuses. He doesn't try to delay. The story says God spoke, so Abraham departed. I mean, who, who does that? Like his first ever interaction with God and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll go. You know, can you imagine the conversation that Abraham had to go back then and have with Sarah to try to convince her of this? And unfortunately, we're not privy to how this conversation went, but what we do know is that somehow Sarah consented because Abraham and Sarah and also uh, Abraham's nephew who was named Lot, they indeed leave everything that they had known. So why is it that when God spoke, Abraham listened? He went. What motivated him to obey? You know, could it have been something as simple yet as profound as just the idea of following something new? Or could Abraham really have had a faith strong enough after just that one encounter with God to believe that God would follow through with his promises? 
Because for Abraham to say yes, I mean, he was kind of taking a pretty big risk. But then again, God was also offering Abraham, this 75-year-old man, a pretty great reward as well. God said, Abraham, I'm going to make something great out of you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And maybe it was this father word that jumped out at Abraham. Because what I haven't mentioned yet is that Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, she was barren. She was unable to have children, which in that day created even more of a social stigma than that does today. So this promise from God was one that would have met a big desire in the life of Abraham and Sarah. But the whole concept kind of seems outlandish. I mean, there's an old man, and he's married to a barren old woman, and God says that this is the guy that's going to be the father of a great nation. I mean, it kind of seems impossible, but Abraham actually believes him. And I'm sure Abraham had no idea at that time how important and and how history-sculpting that decision was going to be. So Abraham and Sarah and Lot, they arrive at Canaan, and then they just kind of hang out there and wait. (laughs) What do they wait for? They wait for God to make a great nation out of Abraham, whatever that's going to look like. And thousands of years later, we have the privilege of, of getting to see how this whole story played out. But Abraham didn't have that privilege. In fact, even in Abraham's entire lifetime, which went for many more years, he only got to see a small sliver of the picture, uh, just a little part of the promises of God fulfilled. And I think that's similar for us. I mean, rarely do we ever get to see the whole picture at one time. Usually the biggest changes for us happen by following God into something new, one step at a time. Obeying God little step by little step while God continues to weave this beautiful new picture around us. But what's cool, though, is that God actually offers us the same blessing that he offers Abraham. If you look at Galatians 3, 7 through 9, it says this, The real children of Abraham, then, are all those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would accept the Gentiles, that's us, non-Jews, too, on the basis of their faith. God promised this good news to Abraham long ago, When he said, all nations will be blessed through you, and so it is. All who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. And that thing that God began in Abraham, that strategy of of God's to use his people to help mend what's been broken in this world, he continues this strategy through us. In other words, it's almost as if God today is still saying to each of us, just as he said to Abraham, I'm going to make something great out of you. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. Because of you, they will get a glimpse of who I am. Put your faith in me, follow my lead, and take hold of this new dream that I'm working through you. You know, Abraham's story is proof that at any age and at any life stage, God can send us on a new adventure where we can make a difference in this world in a practical way. And I like the way that this next video clip kind of sums up that call for us and gets us thinking about what that might practically look like in each of our lives. So take a look at the screens.
God has blessed us to be a blessing, and he has a new adventure for us, a way to be used to point people towards him. But will we let go of the old in order to take hold of this new adventure that God offers us? That takes us into point two. Number two, I exchange my dream for God's dream when I learn to let go. When I learn to let go. So God offers Abraham this, this great promise, this dream of becoming the father of a great nation and that all families of earth are going to be blessed through him. But, but prior to that, God also gave Abraham a, a part to play in experiencing this dream. Remember, he said, leave your country, your relatives, your father's house, go to the land that I will show you. So, so in order for Abraham to follow God into something new, he had to leave behind the old. And I think for us, that's oftentimes easier said than done. How many of you guys love going to the beach? Any beach bums in the room? Yeah, probably most of us, huh? How many of you like secretly or maybe not so secretly wish you were laying on the beach right now? Fair enough. No personal offense taken. If you notice, my hand is also raised. (laughs) But maybe in one of the times that you've been at the beach, you've seen a little kid walking around and collecting shells. Uh, whose hands look something like uh, a picture that we have here. His hands are full, right? He's been walking around, he's been scoping out shells, and he's been filling up his hands until eventually he literally can't take hold of anything new. And while his hands are full, his exploring spirit is still peaked, and so he continues uh, the search for this perfect shell. And so eventually, he happens upon a beautiful shell, like a better, fuller, bigger shell than he has yet to find, but his hands are literally too full to pick it up and grab a hold of it. I mean, he sees the value in this new shell, but he kind of likes all of the other shells that he's already picked up too. He started to grow attached to them. And so now he finds himself in the middle of a dilemma. Does he let go of a few of these old shells in order to make room to pick up this new exciting one? Or, Or does he pass on this incredible new find because he just can't force himself to part with any of the shells that are already in his hands. And and we might chuckle as we watch this little boy work through this dilemma in his mind, but the truth is that we do this same thing with grown-up stuff all the time. We just don't realize it because the stuff that we're holding on to is intangible. Expectations or or dreams that we've grown attached to and so we cling to them with, with all of our mind and all of our will. And so realizing how difficult this is for us to do makes it all the more impressive what Abraham did. I mean, God essentially said, let go of your plans, let go of everything safe, and Abraham did. And so he left everything to go to Canaan. And so you'd think that that would be the end of the story, right? I mean, God calls, Abraham goes, so then God is going to deliver. But, but not quite, <laughs> As it turns out, Abraham discovered that there was a lot of ground to cover from the time that he obeyed until the time that God actually began to make good on some of these promises. And he also discovered that just like an onion, that there's many layers to be peeled off in this process of letting go, of giving up control to God. Abraham, Sarah, and Lot, they follow God into this new dream and then they wait. (laughs) One year, two years, five years a decade, still childless. And so by this time, Abraham, this man who God promised was going to be the father of a great nation, is now 85 years old and he still has no children. 
And in the midst of all of this waiting, as if the waiting isn't hard enough on its own, they encounter a bunch of other difficult circumstances that have to make them wonder, like, did we make the right call? Like, was I just eating some weird mushrooms back when I heard that thing from God, right? But in response to those circumstances, at the beginning of Genesis 15, right before the verses in your outline, it says that the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision. He said, do not be afraid. I will protect you and your reward will be great. And Abraham's response is essentially this. God, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son yet? I mean, wasn't that kind of part of the deal? You know, this whole father of a great nation thing? Verse 3 in your outline, Abraham continues. He says, you have given me no children, so one of my servants will have to be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own to inherit everything I am giving to you. Then the Lord brought Abram outside beneath the night sky and told him, Look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be like that, too many to count. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord declared him righteous because of his faith. I mean, just like any of us would, Abraham has his doubts. But God patiently and firmly reassures him. And scripture tells us that Abraham believes the Lord. But, but while Abraham's over here having this conversation with God, Sarah, the other half of the I Want a Baby Club, is getting a little bit antsy. And so she decides it's time to take matters into her own plans, or into her own hands. And you really can't blame her because she's already waited 10 years, and Abraham's over here, he keeps having these conversations with God, but there's no evidence of Sarah ever having direct conversation with God. So in order to kind of speed things up a little bit, Sarah comes up with this scheme to have her servant, Hagar, sleep with Abraham and bear a child for them. Now, based on Abraham's track record in this story so far, we're thinking there's no way Abraham's going to go for this. I mean, he just said he believed God's promise and he was declared righteous because of his faith. But unfortunately, the temptation for him to speed up receiving these promises that God blessed to him is just too great. And so with encouragement from Sarah, Abraham reverts back to his own plan, his own way of coming up with a son. And so Sarah sends Hagar to Abraham, and Hagar lays with Abraham and becomes pregnant. But because it wasn't God's plan, Abraham and Sarah are forced to live with the consequences of a poor decision. And as you could expect, things end up getting pretty messy between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. But eventually, Hagar gives birth to a son and names him Ishmael. And as Ishmael grows, conflict starts raging. Hagar and Ishmael end up squaring off with with Sarah and Isaac, the baby that she does eventually have, pretty often. And we don't have time to get into all the details of that story, but something that is worth noting is that Ishmael ends up becoming the father of the Arab nations, while Isaac's lineage leads to the nation of Israel. And to this day... (laughs) The descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are still in conflict. And it all originated with this one poor decision made by Abraham and Sarah. You know, how could they have screwed up so royally? It'd be easy for us to sit here and become quickly judgmental of Abraham and Sarah. But before we do that, we have to ask ourselves, how often do we manipulate and scheme to make things happen in our own way because we want to be the ones who are in control? I mean, if you put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's shoes, Abraham's standing there, God, we're old. 
Sarah could not bear a child when she was younger, so why would she be able to bear a child now? There's no humanly possible way that this is going to work. And it's been 10 years. So if you're not going to make this thing happen, we will, because we kind of want that promise that you offered to us. You know, like Abraham and Sarah, there's times in our lives where we find ourselves in a spot that for whatever reason, we just can't see any other way to make something happen, to make our needs and wants be met. So we just decide we're going to take a shortcut in order to get there. We almost convince ourselves, I think, at times that like a little kid who's on a swing, maybe God just needs a little bit of a push to get going. You know, it's like we get to the place where we say to God, God, I want your benefits, but I want them on my own terms. You know, it would be like a kid at Christmas time telling his family, I want what I want and I want it now. So rather than waiting to see if you're going to get me what I want and waiting till Christmas, I'm going to go out and buy everything I want now and then you can pay me back. But that's backwards. I mean, if you think about it, gifts are given on the giver's terms, not on the receiver's terms. And what I think it comes down to is a matter of trust. You know, I think like Abraham, we're quick to say, yes, God, I want this new dream you're going to offer me. But it's almost like at times we say that we only want it if we can get it in the timing and in the method of our own preference. You know, like me sitting in card collecting club, waiting to make a trade, we want the new thing. But we tell God, we're not going to give up our old thing until you put this new thing in our hands. But God is saying, that's, that's not always how it works. I want your trust. I want you to be willing to put down your dream now and then to wait with empty hands. It might take a week. It might take a month. It might take a year. It might take several decades, as in Abraham's case. But I want you to wait expectantly and trust that I'm going to follow through on what I promised you. And I think for us, this is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. Because we've convinced ourselves that fulfillment and security are going to come from holding our lives tighter, holding our own dreams tighter, while all the while God is saying, loosen your grip, lay down your shells. I've got something amazing for you, but you can't take hold of it when your hands are full. We look back to our story and we fast forward another 13 years. This now makes Abraham about 98 or 99 years old and Sarah about 90. And this is when God decides he's going to fulfill his promise. I mean, can you even imagine, 90 is not a time for strollers and teething rings. It's a time for walkers and dentures, right? But just when it seems impossible, God chooses to show up and make a miracle happen. And aside from the joy of finally expanding their family, I'd have to imagine that Abraham felt like a sense of vindication. Like, yes, I haven't just been on this wild goose chase for the past 23 years. This wasn't just a nonsensical whim, but indeed it was a true promise from God. And so Sarah finally has this baby boy, and as I said, they named him Isaac. And Isaac means he laughs. And I can only imagine Abraham and Sarah laughing with giddiness and incredulousness that God decides that at this age, now he's finally going to give them a child. So baby born, right? The promise has been fulfilled. End of story, right? Again, no. Because several years later, God asks Abraham to let go again. And I think this is true to our own experiences. I mean, following God authentically requires a continual progression of surrendering to him. It'd be great if it was just we could say one time, God, I surrender to you, and then bam, our heart is there for the rest of our lives. But that's not how it works. 
You see, in Abraham's case, Isaac was so desired that when he arrived, he quickly became the apple of Abraham's eye. Isaac became the center of Abraham's world, which sounds like a good thing, and in some ways, it was a good thing. But what happens is that Isaac starts to take priority in Abraham's life, even above the God who made Isaac's life possible. And as a parent, I can easily relate to this. I mean, once my son was born, I experienced a new kind of love, and his well-being and my love for him became paramount to me. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with me loving my son. That's what God says we're supposed to do. But when I place my affection for my son above my affection for God, and God says, you kind of got things out of order. And this is what happens with Abraham and Isaac. And so God asks Abraham again to do something unthinkable. He says, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, he wanted to be clear, no, not that son you tried to do over here on the side, the son that I promised you, Take him whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will point out to you. And at this point of the story, we're looking at God like, what in the world are you talking about? Like what kind of God asks a father to cut his son into pieces and sacrifice him as a burnt offering? I mean, from our perspective, this makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. A.W. Tozer, in a book called The Pursuit of God, writes about this a little bit, and you can follow the quote on the screen here. Uh, But it says, Abraham was old when Isaac was born, old enough to have been his grandfather. I mean, I think even old enough to be his great-grandfather, right? And, And the child became at once the delight and the idol of his heart. From the moment he first stooped to take the tiny form Awkwardly in his arms, he was an eager love slave of his son. God went out of his way to comment on the strength of this affection, and it's not hard to understand. The baby represented everything sacred to his father's heart. The promises of God, the covenants, the hopes of the years, and the long messianic dream. And as he watched him grow from babyhood to young manhood, the heart of the old man was knit closer and closer with the life of the son, till at last the relationship bordered upon the perilous. And it was then that God stepped in to save both father and son from the consequences of an uncleansed love. You know, back in the May worship series, we spent a week looking at the topic of idols, uh, at those things, oftentimes good things, that so easily become the center of our hope and the center of our life apart from God. And we're a little over a month away from that message, but... If your life is anything like mine, you you may have peeled one layer of that idle onion off, but there's a bunch of other layers in there that still need to be peeled. So the question bears repeating, what have you put in the center that is not God? I mean, in your heart, what is it that's getting top billing or top priority? What is your Isaac? You know, when I think about my life, I've made idols of all kinds of things. I mean, I've made an idol out of control. You know, I found my hope in my ability to to be smart enough or maybe manipulative enough to make my life turn out the way that I want it to. I've made an idol of godly image, of pursuing the outward appearance of doing good at the expense of actually making room for God to be something good in my life. So what's your Isaac? Is your Isaac acceptance? Is it work? Is it security? Is it intellect? Is it money? Is it status? Is your Isaac relationships? You know, maybe 
Like Abraham, you're a parent and you've made an idol out of your children. You know, you've taken a blessing that God gave you and you've made that blessing more important to you than God himself. It's an easy thing to do. You know, I've had and I will continue to have many Isaacs because I'm human, right? And the tricky thing is that those things creep in so subtly. But, but as subtle as they are, they quickly become central to our whole way of life. But with so many of those things being good things, why is it that God would ask us to give them up? Why? It's because it's only in the surrender of that Isaac that we get the chance to see the fullness of God's amazing dream for our own lives. When we're full of ourselves, when we're full of our stuff, when our hands are full with those shells, there's no room for God. So back to the story, we look at Abraham again, and as is his trademark, he obeys without arguing, delaying, or resisting. And so the next morning he gets up, and him and Isaac and some of his servants, they set out for the mountain. And you're probably familiar with this story. Three days into the journey, and Abraham and Isaac tell the servants, here, you stay behind with the donkey, we're going to go a little further, we're going to make an offering. And so Isaac, knowing that they're getting ready to make an offering, is wondering, what's the sacrifice going to be? And so he asks his dad, and his dad's just like, well, I'm not really sure what to say, so God will provide the sacrifice, right? And so they keep walking, and Abraham sets up the altar. And then they get to the place where Abraham has to grab his son, Isaac, and lay him on the altar. And as a father, I can't even picture that. (laughs) But despite what I'm sure were cries of fear and protest from Isaac, Abraham ties him to the altar. And with sweat on his brow, with butterflies in his stomach, with tears running down his cheeks, he lifts the knife. But before it touches Isaac, an angel speaking for God appears. He says, lay down the knife. Do not hurt the boy in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God because you've not withheld even your beloved son from me. The angel continues, Because you have obeyed me and have not even withheld your only son, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants. Through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. You see, Abraham had completely surrendered his dream to God's dream. He was willing multiple times to lay everything precious to him on the altar, to give it to God. He held nothing back. And on the shoulders of Abraham, God fulfilled a dream. He uses Abraham in just the right way and at just the right time to change the world. Out of Abraham, a great nation is born. And just like Abraham, God is longing to fulfill his dreams through each and every one of us. Each of us in just the right way and at just the right time can change the world as God dreams his dream both in us and through us. He asks us to look and to listen, to to identify that new thing that he's calling us to and then to let go of whatever it is that's attaching us to our old dreams. He's got great plans to sculpt something amazing out of each of our lives. Plans to to, to bless us so that we can bless others. Plans to, to put a piece of his heart inside of us and to allow us to illuminate that piece of his heart to the world. We might not see the whole picture now. We may not see the whole picture ever in this life. But through us, God's crowning achievement, humanity, God chooses to dream his dreams. The question is, are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to loosen your grip? Are you willing to let go of your way 
of your plans, of your dreams, so that God can dream his dreams in and through you. It's not an easy thing to do, but let me assure you there's no better place to be than right in the center of God's dream for your life. Let me pray for you as we wrap up this morning. God, you are great, and you have great dreams for each of us. And sometimes when we find ourselves in the midst of challenging circumstances, it's even difficult to believe that. So for people who are in those moments of doubt this morning, I pray that you would point us to your word, that you would point us to those places where you tell us that you have great plans for us, plans to give us a hope and a future. God, would you help us to take hold of those dreams that you have for each of us, of the ways that you want to use us to be salt and light in this world, to point other people towards you, to bring out your God colors in this world of darkness. And then God, in addition to believing those dreams that you want to live through us, I pray that you would give us the courage to let go of our dreams, to let go of those things that we cling to, those things that we think are going to bring us security and significance, those things and maybe those people who we have placed a higher priority on than you. God, help us in this life to not hold on so tightly, but loosen our grip. Give us hands and hearts that are expectant and continually ready to exchange our dreams for your dreams. God, we love you and we trust what you're going to do in each of our lives as we continue to surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.